This is a Media Lab podcast. Oh, uh, Kyle, what are you, what are you doing, man? <sighs> I mean, ever since we deciphered the first rune, I'm making really big headway on the second one here. So I'm just, I'm try- I think I've got it in the last steps and... Malkovich? Oh, Malkovich? Mal- Malkovich? Malkovich? Oh, Malkovich? Malkovich? Malkovich. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This This is is Kyle Kyle and Dave versus versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the machine. My name is Kyle. Malkovich. And I'm the machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, we're going to be watching the film Being John Malkovich. Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer building. My name is Craig Schwartz and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. (laughs) So, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. Okay, before we do anything, Dave, I think first and foremost, we need to be completely self-serving. And I want to congratulate you on 50 episodes. This is our 50th episode. Great. I already felt old, but thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Kyle. Remember back at the beginning of 2020, being fresh-faced and youthful and thinking that we own the world. And like, you know what this world needs? Another movie podcast. And so I built this machine. It told us it was going to create an apocalypse. Little did we know that there was an apocalypse already on the horizon. I was just going to say, isn't it hard to put into context that this started pre-COVID? That's a weird <laughs> yes. thing to think about. I know, because that feels both two weeks ago and 17 years ago. Yeah. I don't know what non-COVID life is like. It's uh, strange. We've, been, we've done more episodes on Zoom than we have actually face-to-face when we, when we started doing it. Were we doing this in the studio to start? Of course we yeah. were. Yeah, we were. Yeah, you were coming downtown. It just uh, misted in each other's spit. It was great. <laughs> Unable to unlock the smart lock with your fingers. Yeah. Yes, we got locked out of the studio one day. That was that was real fun. You know, those are the good old days. And you knew who you were then. This is also a great occasion. I think this is great serendipity. Not the John Cusack movie. We're talking about a different John Cusack movie. I actually movie. like that movie. Isn't that sad? Uh, that is sad. But we do have our first patron that we need to thank Woo! here on this show. We have our first supporter at the level where we thank them each and every episode. So they go by Green Girl YYC. Mm. 
Uh, that's what their username is on Patreon. So that's what okay. I'm going to use here on the podcast. So thank you so much for being a supporter. And if anyone else wants to help us monetarily, then you can do so by going to our Patreon page. It's linked in our show notes. Reap the rewards. If you're listening to this, mm-hmm. reap, reap them. If you do, this has been recorded a few weeks before this episode goes live. Time is a weird thing, isn't it? And you'll hear, if you go to Patreon and help support us, uh, some bonus content that's over there. So if you want to go and listen to some of that and hear our thoughts on uh, some other topics besides just the movies from 1999, then that's the place to go and do it. We should do an episode on mustaches. Mm. Yeah. Like your inability to grow one or what? You know, I have a couple new hairs growing on the cheek and I'm pretty sure by the time I'm 70, it'll start to connect along this ridge on one side oh, and it'll be like six yeah. long hairs. This is what- Get the half stash going on. It's, uh, it's what women want, Kyle. <laughs> We're not talking about that movie either. So why don't we start here in the context of being John Malkovich- what is your history with Spike Jones, who is the director of this film? Oh, well, he looked pretty strung out in Three Kings. Um, yes, he did. So we've already seen him as an actor this year. Um, just trying to, I mean, I, I think I like him. I, I know that it comes from music videos. We did do the background stuff in the yes, episode. Yes, we did. And I think... So just to put it out there, like his follow-ups to this, he hasn't made like an extensive list, but adaptation... Uh, Where the Wild Things Are, and Her. Those are the three other films he's directed. I mean, those are pretty big. Well, well is this his first movie? No. He did, uh, is it? No, it is. It's his first full-length feature. So, he's pretty good at it, I think we can say. I didn't watch Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. Actually, or... I am a Where the Wild Things Are apologist. I like that movie much more than even critics liked it. Like, they were medium to negative on it. The... So the three or four people I went and saw that movie with uh, all hated it, <laughs> and I really liked it. So you got I'm gum the show. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Just tell your friends to go and fuck then, themselves. <laughs> and then her is one of my favorite films of all time. So you know, doing this every go. week with you, Kyle, I realize you have a lot of favorite films of all time. I I know <laughs> that's why I'm trying to concoct this stupid list <laughs> of my forty favorite films from my life and it's going hard because every movie is my favorite movie of all Feels time. Feels like it. You've got a lot of favorite directors. You've got a lot of favorite actors. I think we need to discuss whether you understand what the word favorite means. It doesn't mean you kind of like it. Let's follow that up on another conversation with Idle Hands, my favorite movie <laughs> that I've ever seen. My, Idle Hands. The favorite movie no. that I like to hate. Then how about being John Malkovich? What is your history with being John Malkovich? Uh, I love I love this movie. I'm just trying to remember whether I'd actually gone to the theater uh, to watch this in person or if I watched it subsequently on some form of a home video device. Um, but I will say that I definitely saw this with Helen and like you and your friends at Where the Wild Things Are, I uh, enjoyed it. Sing- singular. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, and she did not, is what you're no. saying. No. I mean, if again, hypothetically, not to ruin the narrative, I had offered to watch this with her. Uh, she couldn't have slammed the door quick enough in my face. Uh, she had no interest <laughs> in revisiting this. And uh, I'm excited, Kyle, to watch this movie now, air, air quotes. Yes. Because uh, uh, I want to see if I remember it well. As an extension to that, going back to 1999, did you know who John Malkovich was? Sure, yeah. I mean, 
you know, John Malkovich, it's kind of like now, John Malkovich is a name that even then people knew, it Was I think it was uh, Of Mice and Men, and he had done, uh, mm. I mean, I didn't watch Dangerous Liaisons, but he had kind of just popped up as this, oh, th- Three Musketeers, I think. Well, I, I was trying to figure this out, actually, because looking at his IMDb page here, the movies he would have been in, I'm think I I was like you, like I knew the face and the voice, right? yeah. I knew the name, but I wasn't like really knowledgeable about who John Malkovich was. Like the only place I probably would have even seen him in was Con Air. Oh yeah, Con Air. That's right. Yeah. That's literally probably the the Cyrus the virus. Yeah, Cyrus the virus. I can't believe you remember uh, the name. <laughs> I know that that was a pull <laughs> out of my brain that I got that. So like that's probably my only like knowledge base. Like now, yes, I know John Malkovich and how fucking weird he is and uh, all that kind of stuff uh, i've also learned more about him like he was one of the as you actually mentioned in this movie how he was one of the spearheaders of the uh, steppenwolf theater in chicago which is also where um gary sinise and gary sinise yeah. thank you i remember cyrus the virus but not gary sinise apparently uh lieutenant dan <laughs> shows where my priorities are entirely appropriate in my opinion so he has a very long extensive career in theater in film and i still think it's hilarious that they decided to base a movie all around john malkovich he's just uh he's unique kyle i can't i wish i could do his voice to be honest yeah that's a hard one it's a really weird pattern yeah, very unique i and i'm just trying to remember if anyone has successfully spoofed him like on Saturday Night Live or anything. I'm sure someone has yeah, tried. tried for sure. How could you not? So you remember watching it. Have you revisited it at any time in the intervening 21 years? I don't think so. I think I probably because Helen disliked it so much. I don't think I actually owned this movie, which is surprising in hindsight because I remember really liking watching it, but I don't think I owned it. So I'm pretty sure that I have not watched this since its original viewing Maybe in 2000 or 2001, whenever it was. Or 99, yeah. I have no idea. This is definitely something I did not see in the theater. Um, once again, I don't know if I've told you this or not, but uh, the theater in my small town burnt down. So what? I couldn't go and see movies. Uh, not that I probably would have went and saw this as a teenager anyways, to be it's brutally a bit honest. Heady. It's a bit heady for you. Yeah. Bit heady. I don't know if I would have even gotten it, quote unquote, gotten it. No, you wouldn't. But, no. I kept hear- <laughs> but I kept hearing things about this film. And the first time that I watched it was in university. You and so, your dorm, man, in this common room. I know. It's like the seat of your watched intellectualism. Watched a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but I loved it. Like on this, I'm, I'm not even convinced it was like 12 inches. It was a very small CRT monitor <laughs> that we watched this movie off of for the very first time. Uh, really, really enjoyed it to the extent that I became... This person devoted to following both the careers of the director, Spike Jones, and the writer, Charlie Kaufman. And I have watched every single one of their movies in theaters since then, except for the latest Charlie Kaufman movie, which debuted on Netflix. But other than that, I have gone to the theater when any one of their projects has actually come up. But I haven't watched it <laughs> since the, probably that first movie. I'm pretty sure I've only seen it once. Uh, so I'm excited to jump into it because to be really honest, the only thing I really truly remember is the scene where John Malkovich sees himself kind of like superimposed on 
a bunch of other people. And then everyone just keeps saying Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Like that's the whole scene. End scene. Maybe parodied recently on a podcast that you listened to. Mm. I don't know. Stop breaking the fourth wall. Well, Dave, I'm excited to jump into this with you then and see what we think after 20 some years since the last time both of us saw this film. So I'm going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be delving a little bit more into being John Malkovich. Hey everyone, just Kyle breaking into the episode one more time to tell you about some of the great people who continue to help make this show go. I'm recording this little message here on Christmas Eve and uh, trying to figure out what the rest of my Christmas is going to look like. Basically, I am staying at home alone. Uh, My car is five blocks away because it snowed so much here in Calgary that I got stuck three times. And uh, I kind of just said, F it parked it, and walked away. (laughs) If I could have lit a match and thrown it behind me, I would have. But, uh, so that's how my last couple of days have been going. Merry Christmas. On a much more positive note, (laughs) Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing for local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you would save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right, Dave, that was weird. And odd, and I had forgotten vast stretches of this film. Like sometimes I can watch a film that I haven't watched in years and be like, "Oh right, like I know exactly how this is going to fit together." There's points in this movie where it's like I like no recollection of where this is going or how this fits together into the wider narrative. I I thought it was amazing, and do you know how I know I forgot everything? I had forgotten Cameron Diaz is not only one of the leads, but she's so fucking good in this movie. Cameron Diaz is phenomenal and i totally friend she's in and it. it's a crime that more people have not cast her to do more good stuff yeah i mean when i did some research there's i mean she's an interesting person apparently she's like officially retired i didn't know that but i thought she just wasn't oh, really? getting parts but uh anyways um huh. i you know i do remember of course this being a katherine keener like my introduction to katherine keener but uh i mean how good is john cusa everybody was incredible in this movie yeah, what's wild about this, I mean, John Malkovich is, you know, his own beast and he kind of just does his like little passion projects and stuff that he wants. 
Catherine Keener is so underappreciated in Hollywood that it makes me so mad. Like every time I see her, like you're so good at all of this. Not that awards are everything, but I'm pretty sure this is the only time she's ever been nominated for, your award, yeah. for an acting job in the pretty Academy yeah. Awards. And it, it, it infuriates me as much as I love the movie Captain Phillips, for instance, she's the wife in Captain Phillips and is on screen for like five minutes. I'm like, what are you doing? Like you deserve to be so much bigger than what they're allowing you to be. Anyways, that's my rant on Catherine Keener. I think she's got, a, she looks like she has a very strong personality and she looks like she plays a particular type of person. And I don't know if that's typecasting or if she just doesn't want to play sweet. <laughs> I think the nicest role was probably 40 year old virgin and she still comes off a train wreck in that movie too. So yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, well, before we get too far into the actual actors and stuff like that in as non spoilery a way as possible, what are your thoughts on being John well, Malkovich? There's no way to talk about those spoil. I mean, uh, I think weird is the best and must see, I don't know, a great analysis of the human condition. How's that, Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> what a bunch of BS phrases you just threw at everyone. But great. Yeah. No, it's not that I even disagree with you. I think this is a phenomenal movie. To tip my hand a little bit, I think it's a great Ooh. movie. A very, very great Spoiler movie. Alert. In fact, again, not that uh, other critics are the be-all and end-all, but if you go back to the year 1999, this was Roger Ebert's favorite film that year. He put it as the number one film that came out in 1999. It's also interesting how it was received, I think. Definitely was a positive reception but it was, I think, just a bit too weird for academies and other awards bodies to like fully support everything. And you can kind of see that with, uh, again, going back to the Academy Awards, where it's nominated for Best Director, but not Best Picture, which doesn't happen very often. It was The Green Mile, actually, that uh, got the Best Picture slot over this one, if you want to look at the directors and movies lining up in this year. So it's it's interesting that like the directors saw talent in Spike Jones, but the wider academy was not as enthusiastic to elevate it to best picture status. And I think that the big film nerds definitely keep like singing the praises of this movie, but I also think that this movie is hard to promote and talk about because it's you, you can talk about like the very surface level about it being uh, a guy finds a portal that you can go inside of John Malkovich for 15 minutes. Because that is basically you, you what the, the plot is the about. Thing. That's what the trailer tells you. But yes, well, I was that's what the plot is. But that's also not what this movie is about. Like really is not what this movie is trying to talk about. Uh, use that as a backdrop to talk about other things. So I think that we're going to have a very deeper discussion inside of our spoiler uh, section of the podcast. I'm just here to say that I think this is great. It's a great, great movie that I think everyone should go and see. I won't name the scene, but I think there is, uh, until later, but I think there's a particular scene that is metaphorical uh, about this part of our conversation, about uh, art and the acceptance by the masses. And I also think yeah. um, this is not a movie for the vast majority of people that trailers pander to. If you're the type of person that needs to know how a movie ends before you pay 25 bucks to go see it in a theater, you're not going to like this movie. 
<laughs> well, yeah, it's also just so much weirder <laughs> than I think what those types of people just to generalize all over the place. I think it's much weirder than what those people would even be willing to come in for. If you watched and enjoyed Con Air, you will not like this movie. <laughs> yeah. If Michael Bay's your well, if Michael Bay's your jam, I would say that this then, though, uh, you're not here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if 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 Con Air is your favorite movie of all time, this movie might not be for you. But if you you can like Con Air and still I think have a, a good time with this. Con Air is tied with Face Off as my favorite movie. Uh, so let's not beat around the bush too much. Let's get through some of our background information and then we can delve a little bit further into the film itself. So Being John Malkovich was released on October 29th, 1999. Also released that day was Music of the Heart, written by Pamela Gray, directed by Wes Craven, starring Meryl Streep, Aidan Quinn, Angela Bassett, and Gloria Stefan. Have you seen Music no, of the Heart? never heard of it. A lot it of was the 10th, 10th or 11th film that uh, Meryl Streep was nominated for Best Actress. Oh, she got nominated for, for two. Oh, yeah. Yes. So this is uh, an interesting period of Wes Craven in that he was simultaneously doing the Scream franchise while also trying to become like the super like well-respected director. <laughs> uh, he was trying to break away from like, quote, like the horror genre a little bit uh, and didn't really work out no. a lot for him. Because I think his his bread and butter is horror. He does a great job um, when he's in that in the confines of that. So currently, it is rated seven point seven on IMDb, ninety on Metacritic, and then over on Rotten Tomatoes, ninety three percent from one hundred and thirty five critics, and from two hundred and sixty two thousand six hundred and thirty eight users, it's at eighty seven percent. Respectable. This is available. Yeah, no, this is very very highly rated. Not as high as the Green Mile, the thing, just... but it's still highly. <laughs> respected it is available on dvd and blu-ray you can buy or rent it on itunes uh you can also rent it via google and currently it is not on any streaming service in canada I, i'm not as offended by the green mile as cider house rules i'm pretty sure has like 90s across the board you and i will go to our graves dave just totally not understanding the appeal of the cider house rules uh it is going to be forgotten another like 10, 15 years completely, I'm pretty sure, if it hasn't already been, but there you go. I'd like someone to step forward and tell me they own this on a streaming platform. Cider House Rules. Yeah. It's impossible. <laughs> Dave, I'm just going to let you know right now, just get ready to be enraged. Whenever we talk about budgets, you like to bring up a certain I'm film. I'm ready. Runaway Bride. Let's go. Runaway Bride. Yeah. This, this budget for this movie was $13 really? million, dollars, one three. The fact that you can do what happens in this movie for $13 million, and we've seen p pictures that are $80 million, uh, as a budget and look worse yeah. than this movie. Yeah, anyway, I, I'm, just, uh, I'm just saying. Aside from my classic <laughs> bagging on Runaway Bride, you know what? Yeah, that's, there should be an award. There should be an award for efficient use of budget dollars because this movie looks like it should have cost $100,000. Way more than that. Beautiful. I think this actually has a lot to do with Spike Jones coming from music videos where there's just like you do not get a lot of money and you have to figure it out. Like your budget is whatever a music video would be. I probably a million would be like way, way a lot. You're probably dealing with a few, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And it's like, yeah, just do what you can with this little bit of money. I think too, money. something like this with an indie sort of buzz, you're going to get all these actors taking pay cuts to be part of interesting projects. That's true. Because this is... Cameron Diaz post the mask. Yeah. So she was already getting bigger and bigger roles. John Cusack was a pretty big Huge. name, but he did take a pay cut to be on yeah. this. 
And then Judd Malkovich is Judd Malkovich. Like this is, he'd already been in 25 films. He might've done this for this free point. just because he thought it was silly. Who knows? We'll talk about that actually, about how long it took them to convince John Malkovich to actually do this. So yes, its budget was $13 million. It opened in a very small release to $637,000. Domestically, it would go on to make $23 million. There was not an international release, so it ended with a $23 Shocking. million. Dollars, but still, made money. So this was actually a pretty tiny profit, which was nice. That's $35 million, by the way, if you look at inflation. I feel like this movie would have done well overseas. but Just knowing a little bit about like France and stuff like that, people in France would love this yeah. movie. They love weird, oddball stuff like this. So I'm actually interested they didn't try and push because Hollywood wasn't this a Miramax film? I don't remember. I don't yeah. know that. If that's I true. Remember. I don't remember. Anyways, we just watched the movie, and I should have paid more attention <sighs> to. Well, the it's, title it's a cards. weird movie. <laughs> its plot description is: a puppeteer discovers a portal that leads literally into the head of movie star John Malkovich. That is the plot description of this Spoiler movie. Spoiler alert! It's it's it stars John Cusack as Greg Schwartz, John Malkovich as John Malkovich. Cameron Diaz as Lottie Schwartz and Catherine Keener as Maxine Lund. Uh, we've already talked about the actors basically here. The only thing I just want to call out is that this was back still when John Cusack cared. So that was nice to see him caring again in the movie. I remember being a big John Cusack fan in the 90s. And he did a I mean, I think it was Gross Point Blank that really got me. But, uh, you know, Runaway Jury is a great movie. I really like that movie, man. And they had like Gene Hackman and uh, Rachel Weisz when she was still, yeah, just before she became sort of Oscar Beatty actress. She was fun in that. And then he went insane. John Cusack used to be someone who I actually really enjoyed seeing in yeah. films. And then if you've seen him in a film recently, that means you were scraping the bottom of the Netflix He's barrel because that's probably the movie that he is well, in. Well, he said some. He has said some weird stuff. And I saw an interview with him on YouTube, and he's. Uh, a very particular <laughs> He said, person. it should have been called being John Cusack. <laughs> that was what I pitched. That is what I wanted. Well, he's, you know, he's very political. I, the two weird things that I found out is him and this reporter arranged for an interview with Ed Snowden after that whole blo WikiLeaks thing. They went to Russia. They filmed okay. and interviewed him. Like, how weird is that? That uh, ex sort of yeah. Hollywood star would fly to Russia to interview. Like, that's... Why did he do that? Because he's a, some political nut. And so, the other thing that oh, I read okay. is... He's very pro-Palestine. I don't know why he's got such a strong opinion about, uh, you know, I mean, it's not a great situation in the Gaza, but... No, we're going to solve it here in this episode, he, so let's get into the Israeli-Palestine conflict. He posted an anti-Israeli thing and attributed a quote to Voltaire. Turned out the quote is from a, a neo-Nazi white supremacist. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, so that's uh -huh. that kind of gives you a picture where his head's at. He's... he's uh, a strange dude. I should give him a phone call. Also, uh, like Sissy, yeah. uh, apparently his name is supposed to be Cusack. Oh, not with an S. Yeah, Cusack. So John Cusack. and uh, Joan C Cusack. Cusack. Yeah, Cusack's fine for me. We've already seen it. We actually have seen his sister a couple of times, Joan's actually. Great, yeah. But she's also <laughs> a nut. So, so she's yeah. great. Of course, written by Charlie Kaufman, just to go over his list of credits again, uh, had been running for television famously. He started on the Dana Carvey show that actually did launch like a ton of careers, weirdly, because that's where Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell started before going off to The Daily Show. Charlie Kaufman was there. And there was another writer that was on that show uh, that went on to like do huge, huge things. This, of course, was his first feature film. 
as a writer, his first feature film as a writer. And he would go on to write such things as Human Nature, Adaptation, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Synecdoche, New York, and recently on Netflix, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Have you watched that uh, Netflix film? No, it's such a depressing title. I've skipped it. I Just knowing you over the last little bit, I'm convinced you'd hate it, but <laughs> or not like it very much at the very least. Uh, of course, I found it eminently fascinating. Oh. Uh, and then I spent like a good two to three hours after it, like Googling and like, what does this mean? What does that mean? <laughs> I'm only going to bring up this one thing. And this is minor spoilers for the movie. So if no one wants to know anything about I'm thinking of ending things, you can fast forward like 15 seconds. Uh, do a minute. So do you know what a dream ballet is, Dave? I don't know. Is it a ballet in your dreams? No. So a dream ballet was utilized a lot in Broadway musicals for many, many years. Rodgers and Hammerstein has a, one in every single one of their shows, which is basically musicals happening. And then somewhere close to the end in the second act, they do the dream ballet, which is just a dance piece set to music that basically reiterates everything that's happened in the plot up until that point. It was a convention that lasted for like 20, 30 years. For some reason, they just like to do it. This movie has a dream ballet in it, and I think it is eminently fascinating. It's not a musical at all. And yet at a certain point in the movie, there's a ballet number that happens that reiterates everything that's happened up until this point. And you're going to find that entirely pretentious or like I did, like, this is amazing. <laughs> I love that they're, they're going this batshit crazy in this movie. Um, and that's, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. You should go I watch think, it. Uh, Charlie Kaufman is a very weird person. There's, there's no if, ands, or buts about that. Spike Jones, of course, we've already talked about here as well. The only last day we talked about his music video work, the big names are Sonic Youth, Beastie Boys, and Weezer. Those are kind of the three big Bjork bands too, that he, yeah. uh, Bjork, he did. Yeah, he did a few Bjork uh, music videos. And then he's also done documentary film work. But his latest one, if you have the Apple TV Plus service, was Beastie Boy Story. So he was the... And they yell at him halfway through the documentary. So you can see Spike Jones on camera for, for a bit, if you want. Dave, let's jump into this movie. Where do you want to start? I don't even know where to start with this movie, necessarily. Um, maybe in the end of the middle part of the beginning. I think that's a good space. Great. Um, I love it. There is a point where John Cusack says the following thing. He says... Consciousness is a terrible thing. Do you agree or disagree? <laughs> Timer starts now. Uh, Timer starts uh, now. I don't know. Please use at least two symbols. Well, I mean, on that point, and I read that this is a theme with Charlie Kaufman, but as soon as the monkey appears in this movie, and much like you're describing a dream ballet, we get the cutaway of his trauma. There are so many layers where Charlie Kaufman is trying to expound on the negative part of human nature in this that yeah i mean it seems terrible i think it's great uh, i would say i even go so far as that was that's what he is obsessed <laughs> with is the negative parts of human nature and trying to grapple with like how how do good things and bad things happen at the same you, time you know almost. what's fascinating kind of just with a brief history that i read about him is uh he really struggled to get in to hollywood that i wonder if all of this started coming out in his writing because he was so destitute that he just could not get hired anywhere. And he just like, yeah, it's fascinating because he's, he seems like a miserable. Well, I think what the yeah, interesting thing, 
I think what the interesting thing is, just to break that down a little bit, because I do think what you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about this idea of the unwashed masses and they don't understand my art and like, screw them sort of thing. John Cusack is this literally as a puppeteer who has these kind of very lifelike puppets, which I have to say is beautiful. Like, I love those scenes. Uh, I don't know who's actually moving the puppets around, but it's amazing. I am the puppet master. So simultaneously, yes, he is very, very talented as shown in this movie, while also being completely insufferable. And I totally understand why he's not successful. So there's these two kind of convergent things where it's like, A, it's going to be super difficult Unless you, you know, capture lightning in a bottle like Jim Henson did and be like, I'm going to become a famous puppeteer. The most famous and make millions of dollars being a puppeteer. Even if you're great. And you can see that unself-awareness in the scene where he's doing his thing, which is overtly sexual, while a little girl is watching and then gets punched out by your father. Which I think, justifiably so. But <laughs> I don't know if you have a counterpoint well, to a, that. Well, A, that's the scene I was mentioning earlier. I think that's such a great metaphor of why the Academy, for example, will refuse to allow this movie a Best Picture nomination because it is so controversial. I mean, obviously, 20 years later, we have much more... <laughs> Uh, brutal films mm-hmm. that are being made now, even in the so-called intellectual sphere. But uh, just trying to think in context, in 1999, uh, if I'm part of the so-called Academy, this movie is, uh, it's got such a hard edge. I mean, yeah, like it's treaties on sexual power and feminism on transgender stuff. Like it's it's just out there. They throw mm-hmm. stuff at you a mile a minute. Well, crazy. that's the thing. Yeah. There's so many things they throw out here as like ideas that I I don't think actually that they ever come back and close the loop on every single one of those. But I think they give enough, obser- not observation, enough uh, time to them to at least feel like they're trying to address it. We'll get to some of those other things here, but just to like finish my thought process about how this starts, because that's one of the first things that John Cusack says is consciousness is a terrible thing. I really do think that that ultimately is what the movie is actually trying to grapple with, which is when you're conscious, when you're a human being, you are trapped by your thoughts and you have the stupid little meat package around your mind that you have to utilize that you have to contend with. There is the ideas and like your wants and your dreams. And then there is the very real physical barriers that stand in your way. And so when you get to have a moment to be like, I'm going to be a John Malkovich for 15 minutes you get to experience, oh, this is what maybe confidence feels like, or this is what it feels like to be on stage in front of people. And you get to have like that 15-minute snapshot into a person's life without having to have their consciousness along with it. And so it's this, I think, really interesting counterpoint to being like, I'm trapped by my own consciousness, but is it? Or is it the actual limitations I'm putting on myself? And I think that that's what it's trying to figure out along the way. What's fascinating, I mean, you brought up earlier that Jim Henson was lightning a bottle. But even in this movie, they talk about the person he's jealous of, I can't remember the name, who is a successful uh, puppeteer. But there's already a glimpse that this has nothing to do with puppeteering and has everything to do with John Cusack's character. Right. And I think this is a good enough time to ask you this question. Whether in 1999 or in current day, do you think we're supposed to empathize with John Cusack at all in this movie? Um, Empathize is a strange relational word, particularly in movies like this. I think it's meant to reflect uh, a part of everybody. 
So whether this is a consuming part of your personality or you're like above this and, and pretty chill person, I suspect, and is again, another broad generalization, but I think it's inherent or endemic or whatever. It's, it's a core part of the human experience um, to have this negativity in you um, in all aspects. So they cover uh, jealousy, self-deprecation, sexual, um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, every level of human, let's say sin, is represented in this movie. So I don't think you're supposed to empathize and think of him as a heroic character. If anybody, maybe Cameron Diaz, uh, her character, but I think it's played in the middle so that you can't turn away. He's not a villain, as villainous as he as he becomes. He's uh, tortured at the beginning. Uh, and so you start thinking, oh, maybe it's not his fault. Because uh, I've felt this way before. I'm not recognized at my office job, or I feel like I should have more... And then as it spins out of control, I was thinking when I was watching this, the difference between this sort of uh, controlled absurdism, surrealism uh, versus like something that's totally unhinged. Here, there's a clear enough narrative where I think you have to, uh, if you enjoy this movie, you have to ask those questions about yourself rather than the characters. So what I, when I walk away from this, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I think John Cusack's a good person, but I think that he reflects part of myself that I have to, you know, worry about. That may be the scariest thing you've ever said. Yeah, because I have to say, now I'll be, I'll be the vulnerable one here. The original time I watched this movie, I remember feeling at least partly sympathetic to the John sure. Cusack character. And now, at the age of 37, I find him repulsive. <laughs> like, I just like, this guy is so deluded and think that he is so above everyone that he just deserves to have everything and screw everyone else. I'm going to lock my wife in a cage. I'm going to take over this man's body and use him as like an actual puppet that he becomes. Yeah. Like this gross caricature, uh, person. And I think you're su feels like there were supposed to be a bit on his side. And then that gets slowly gets corrupted over time. Uh, but I basically was not on his side from like <laughs> step one, uh, for whatever reason, I was just like totally, anti John Cusack. Isn't part of that sort of the wisdom of age and experience? Like when you're a kid, yeah, everything's so. a little bit more binary, uh, at least for, like there's, I'm meeting a lot of young people who seem to have their heads screwed on straighter than mine was. But, you know, I, I thought the world is very black and white and that when I was losing, it's everybody else's fault. <laughs> and, uh, right. and so, yeah, the first time I watched this movie. Well, that's basically what John Cusack well, is thing. feeling. It's their fault. It's yeah, that person, so that, right? You know, when I'm young and I watch this movie, for sure, I'm going to think, yeah, like, you know, how could you not do this? And why wouldn't you go after that? And then, yeah, as it twists, even as a young man, it's going to twist. And you're like, oh, you know, should he be locking his wife up in a cage with a monkey? You know, maybe not, but you know, he's got to go and get the woman he loves. Now we're old and we're like, what the fuck? Is, like, he, it opens up and he's just... He's so gross. <laughs> and you're like, well, uh, this is not going to go well for this guy. But it is interesting, too, the counterpoints, like watching Catherine. I, I thought the intentional thing where Catherine Keener is like portrayed as this alpha male patriarchal figure in a woman's body. Her legs are always open. I don't know if you noticed that, but in every scene, she's no. like, she's splayed out. Uh, she's so aggressive and cruel. Uh, it is, it, well, and Catherine Keener has actually said, uh, doing the, some of the, some research I normally don't do actually uh, for this show, is she had a hard time. She really hated yeah. the character. <laughs> Apparently, she's like, I don't like this person, but I'm playing it's, her. Uh, 
Yeah, it starts off where she's kind of this villain. I mean, there's here's a counter question. I mean, do you empathize with her after she has her aha moment, having been chained herself to John Malkovich uh, towards the end, where she's looking for compassion that she kept Cameron Diaz's John Malkovich baby? Like, the, how weird is that at the end? Is that supposed to be a redeeming God, moment? Yeah, I, I don't like know, that right? Ghost, yeah. That's a hard question for me to answer, and I feel like I need to do another rewatch to be able to fully figure out what my feelings are. I don't know if I quote unquote like anyone in this movie. <laughs> I think they're all a little bit self-deluded and oh, self-serving. Yeah. And I guess, yes, there is that light bulb moment for her and Cameron Diaz by the end so that they feel like they have actually learned something, which John Cusack does not have that moment. He continues to be feeling like everyone's out Stuck to, in to his get mind. him yeah. sort of thing. So do I feel sorry for her or better for her no but i guess i feel less antagonistic towards here i guess that's the best i can say at this point i think that is a good jumping off point to talk about the sexuality that's on display in this movie i have kind of a positive and a negative thing here and talking about going outside of our lane boy am i about to go completely outside of my lane not in this first part though in the first part i actually love this idea of the the couple, Cameron Diaz and John Cusack, both falling in love with the same person and that person actually rejecting both of them. I actually think that is such a hilarious concept in and of itself. There could be literally an entire movie just on that itself. So when they both go in for that kiss on the couch, he's like, uh, no and no, <laughs> right? I'm like, yes, okay, it's not going in this strict way. And then turning it to be like, I'm in love with you, Cameron Diaz character, but only when you're in the body of John Malkovich. And that's like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, and I don't even know what the analogy would be there. Like, I guess I like the idea of you. Like, I could read this in a little bit of the, um, what you see as influencer culture now on YouTube and with podcasting, which is like, oh, I really want to be with this person. But all I know them is a very short amount of time that I see them online and that, per and that persona that they have during that time. And that's what I feel the Catherine Keener characters are really tapping into. It's like, I like you, but only in this specific context. And when I actually get to know you, then I'm actually not interested. So there's an interesting dynamic that's going on there. I got a sense of, I mean, you know how I feel about this catchphrase lately of the toxic masculinity. I thought it was stressed. I mean, you bring it up more well, often than the I The problem is it's such a theme uh, with these writers um, dealing with their own, you know, masculine insecurities. But... Like, for example, John Malkovich is portrayed as this, not just this, a sex symbol, but he's also quite assertive and, you know, he'll meet a random stranger. I know that there's that whispering in his mind, but he'll go meet a crazy person in a restaurant and take her home and, and, uh, and get it, right. get it, you know? Um, and so he's portraying, I mean, I don't know how John Malkovich is in his private life, but he's portraying this uh, stereotype of a male celebrity who is kind of, uh, just takes what he wants and Catherine Keener's this foil where she's a woman who does the same thing and she comes off cruel. Same thing, yeah. But her sort of uh, first aha moment is seeing some kind of femininity and uh, kind of like, yeah, passionate eye worship through seeing Cameron Diaz enjoying this experience that she is never allowed to have. Someday I want to share passionate eye worship with somebody else. So, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, go too English majory with this but how do you take that is that like she's attracted to 
males showing vulnerability or is she literally attracted to femininity like what is it that she's attracted to yeah that's that a good moment? question i don't know i and there's there's like three twists already in that statement right like there's a a masculine mm-hmm. masculinized woman seducing an alpha male male who's got a suppressed female inside you know i i don't know if we we yeah. have the right uh, phds to break that up but i think the 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 fourth flip is uh, immediately Cameron Diaz coming out and uh, saying that she thinks she's supposed to be a man. Like, uh, you know, I, I was physically taken aback. And that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is where like I am completely not the right person to talk about this. We tiptoed around this during the Boys Don't Cry episode. I went and tried to find if there was any writing on this topic specifically and just see what other people in the trans community have to say about this movie. And honestly, I was a little bit shocked because I that took me by surprise. Like, A, don't remember them bringing this up in this movie. And like, B, I was like, uh, I don't think that's what's going on here, Cameron Diaz, either. And actually, a lot of people had positive things to say about this movie and how it treats that topic when it comes up. Even as much of a jerk as John Cusack is in that scene specifically, they come to the realization that it's not the sexuality. It's like not the actual gender that is the the question here. It, there, there's actually an emotional response that you're happen, having, and you have to fully lean into that to really discover what's going on. Anyways, I thought it was that's a fascinating thing to bring up in and of itself. And honestly, I think had this movie been made, say today, that would actually have to be addressed a little bit more than what it was in 1999. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know what I like uh, like listening to you describe it because I also felt. And yeah, I'm, I am not trans gay or any, you know, any, uh, sort of, uh, non-binary old school thing. Yeah. You're boring. We get it, Dave. But I, I had a great smile on my face when that came out because they didn't, because they didn't try to make it into something it didn't have to be. Like it was a character's experience and then her, uh, reaction to it. It's vulnerable. It's, it's quick. And then it's manifestation becomes everybody's chase for it. It's not just that she wants to be a male. It's like everybody wants to live this life they think that they are supposed to have. It's not the maleness that she's attracted to. It's and, other And we don't need to that. know. You know, is yeah. it the power? Is it, a, is it the relationship with Catherine Keener? Is, he, is she in love with him because she's a woman? Is she in love with him because she's the man that she thought John Cusack should be? I mean, there's too many layers, right? Like To the point where I think that, this, again, this movie goes in completely different directions. Uh, the Ebert review is actually interesting because he mentioned something about how in most films, when you get to the third act, you kind of know what the straight line is going to be. And you get to the third act in this movie and there's still a few oh, twists yeah. and turns that happen. They're like, I did not think that this is where this movie was going to at all type of yeah. thing. We haven't even mentioned the fact that there's that whole subplot about like this mystic group of people who <laughs> jump into uh, John Malkovich's head so that they can go up and be part uh, of his seed, which is like, okay, like, let's I calm love the down. absurdity. The absurdity of it is very Monty Python in reflection, uh, like in its yeah. setup. And you know what I love about it is that they don't try to explain it at all. With the exception of that weird home video, <laughs> you know, the opening uh, office yeah. orientation. Which, which is... God, another thing I love. They nailed that, like, really so bad, good. like, take-home video. And then, yeah. you know, you get your classic anti-corporate illusions, you know, seventh half floor, so everybody's stooping. You get that compressed, uh, claustrophobic thing. People are miserable. Everything's gray. Very Matrix, very office space. Very 1999. Mm-hmm. Is that the year this was released? Well, even like the fact that, yeah, they're in that half office space, like they're yeah. at seven and a half, right? So it's like everyone's stooped over. To, it's great. 
I love it's very Terry yes. Gilliam type stuff too. Is like the other director that this very much it's reminds well. me of. Except it feels like there's more of a well, it's it's much more uh, a part of like early Terry Gilliam where I thought that there was actually a thematic yeah, point to his madness like versus later Terry Gilliam where it's like uh, I don't know what you're well, going. It for can only here. be funny for two decades and then you're gonna lose context. Like I I've actually tried <laughs> to go back to some Monty point. Python and some of the some of it's not aged that well. Well, and the other thing too is, uh, did they bring it up? You know, um, just this idea of a, a whole. I, I think it's Cameron Diaz talking about some of these weird tropes. If we're talking about sexuality, about just yeah, being inside, outside. Like you know, there's a lot of weird little nuances about about sex. And then, of course, from John Cusack's thing, it's not sex; it's lust, lust for this woman he meets, mm-hmm. lust for power, lust for recognition. Everything about him is about this. Uh, Lustful, lustful, yeah. And, yeah. you know, they do the Scarlet Letter thing where on a public corner and his marionettes are uh, uh, dry he- dry humping yeah. each other through a wall. Um, you know, yeah. that's the biggest, the beginning of the movie, essentially. <laughs> but by the way, that that story is like the, the setup was the precursor to Romeo and Juliet, just a lot more <laughs> explicit with what happens. Let's talk about John Nakovich for a bit. We actually don't very often, I find on this show, delve into like how the movie was made necessarily. Maybe we should bring more of that into the discussion. This movie had been tried to be made since the early 1990s. Charlie Kaufman actually shot this script around to a bunch of places, always with John Malkovich. It was always with John Malkovich in mind, which I find, again, hilarious that that is the actor that he chose to pick that he chose it actually opened doors for him that's how he got a bunch of his writing jobs was showing off this script and being like oh wow like you have a great imagination let's hire you on for some of these other jobs for television etc uh john malkovich said straight up i do not want to play this part i just don't think i'm right for it i'm not going to do it but i will become a producer on it here for you charlie kaufman basically stuck to his gun and says no i'm not making this movie unless you actually star in this role and other people tried to convince him to do other people. The other person famously was Tom Cruise that they wanted to do, where this would be called Being Tom Cruise, which probably, I, I don't know, to rewrite history here a bit, is basically at the beginning of Tom Cruise in this period, that like 10, 15 year period where he was like, yeah, I'll do every kind of weird role any famous director asks me to do uh, type of thing. So he might have been up for it to to do a weird role he like this as well. But He might be uh, able anyways, to pull it off now. But Charlie Kaufman said no. He said absolutely not. It has to be John Malkovich. Would you like to read my script called Being Bob Gunton? Uh, and this is a hindsight thing, but how many actors in the late 90s were quirky enough and had enough range to pull off so many different characterizations and, br- and psychological yeah. breakdowns of themselves. So. Honestly, there's only one person I can kind of think of that has a bit of the same aloofness that John Malkovich has, and it's Christopher yeah. Walken. And that's the only person I can think of that might have been able to actually yep. pull this off. And that would have been even a weirder <laughs> movie if it was being Christopher Walken, uh, to be honest. Christopher Walken. Same weird speaking pattern now that I'm thinking of it. They have both of them speak in a yeah, weird that, way. I wonder if it'll turn out you know, where do those accents come from? Are they affected because that's how they get character acting jobs? Or are they just, you know? I think it's a little bit of both where it's like a bit of where they grew up and I think they put on a bit of a performance and then it just sticks to them. It's how they get their gigs. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who tried to have a British accent for a year and that was something I, I had to deal with. Blimey. Cool, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, blimey. I'm like, okay. You were born in central Alberta. Let's like... Come on. <laughs> You're better than this. 
No, you're not. There's some other things that I, I put down here. I just want to mention a couple of lines that I found hilarious. So the uh, one of the very first times that we see someone go into the mind of John Malkovich, he's in that taxi oh, yeah. cab. Uh, and when it's like, uh, you were all right in that one movie. Yeah. I love that because that's such a underhanded compliment that I think it's just so funny that that's how they phrase that line. Uh, but then there's also the reoccurring thing. It's like, you're in a Jewel <laughs> Heist movie, right? Which I don't actually know what the reference is if he was in a Jewel Heist or there's someone who looks like him that was in a Jewel yeah, Heist movie. Just- it's Regardless, yeah. I I like it's a recurring joke about this movie that he actually was not in whatsoever. Maybe it um, comes from an anecdote from his side, you know? Maybe Charlie Kaufman asked him one day, like, is there something that people thought you're in? And he's like, they keep asking me if I'm in some kind of jewel heist movie. I think that must happen to oh, some yeah. of those character actors. Like, we've seen um, Philip Baker Hall now in a couple of movies, like the old guy who's like in everything. <laughs> Uh, and and he, and he has to be asked as like, oh, like I loved you in that movie. Like, thank yeah, you. Yeah, Wasn't in that sure. movie whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's an interesting question that's asked, or that sorry, that is stated. I think it's by John Cusack as well, which he even asked the question is like, is Malkovich Malkovich? Like, just asking that existential question is like, when we say that we're in the mind of John Malkovich, what does that even mean? Like, does is John Malkovich even in the mind of John Malkovich? So. That's like an entire book you could write about that question. Oh, there have been. It's called philosophy. Yeah. Because John Malkovich is playing like a heightened version of himself, right? For the first little bit. There is this one moment where Catherine Keener comes over and his exact phrase, I had to pause the movie. You were there. I had to pause the movie and rewind it because I was laughing so hard at how pretentious John Malkovich plays himself. Shall we to the boudoir? <laughs> it's such a stupid line, but I think it's so funny to me that that's how that's, he would phrase that. I just feel like, I mean, it, I wonder if I were a John Malkovich, true John Malkovich fan, if each of the iterations are actually parts of characters. Like, do you think that's a dangerous liaisons thing? I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. could be. Maybe he's just bringing out other things. Um, to To be honest with you, I mean, we keep kind of bringing up the Oscars this year. I keep bringing up the Oscars this year. So John Mark- John Malkovich, for me, does a remarkable performance in this movie. Oh, yeah. Not just playing like a kind of a, this weird version of himself, but then has to essentially play John Cusack as if he is in John Malkovich playing John Malkovich. Yeah. Like that's three level chess that you have to play. And then... I don't know if it's great dancing, but that moment where he is actually doing like movement and kind of ballet and stuff like that. There's something weirdly transfixing about that scene that I don't know what it is, but it's like, I can't stop watching John Malkovich dance around shirtless wearing that stupid like blanket that's wrapped around his waist. uh, You know, I think a, there's a subconscious connection to the original opening dance act with the marionette because you get mm-hmm. that moment where you're oh, like, oh yeah, it's the same, it's the same, it's the same routine. Piece. But yeah. also, you get the opposite where you're like, it starts off as a doll, and by the middle, you're like, this doll is moving in a near yeah. human-like fashion in a very choreographed sense. Half the time, the marionettes were out. I was just kept thinking, like, how do they not tangle the strings? You know, like yeah. how, what is it that's because people can actually do this with advanced puppetry, you know, make eyeballs move and shit like that. And uh, I think, A, when you get back to John Malkovich doing it, there's a immediate for me, like kind of a connection, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm watching this with a human. And then the John Malkovich acting part is the commitment, his face, <laughs> you know, and you can tell like he's not 
going to be a ballet ballet dancer, but no. he's in, he's in that moment. He's like he's yeah, working. He's committed to it. They body well, double also, two scenes, you know, where he's flipping and uh, you know, it's incredible. But there's also those moments too where he has to play so John Malkovich is taking over him. So he's basically doing the mannerisms of like John Cusack. And then he can break free of that for like a half yeah. a second or a second. And, and then come and come back in. And it's like totally believable every single time that's this guy blasting forward trying to take control of his own body back. Anyways, I think it's a crime that he was not nominated for best actor this year. No. Uh, I don't maybe you would say he was a supporting actor, but his name's in the title. So I feel like it would be a best actor nomination. So uh I think he should have won over Kevin Spacey. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, this this is essentially an ensemble cast. I think every yeah, the four of them were incredible throughout the whole movie. Five, if you include the old man. I don't know about this academy, Kyle. I don't think there's actually any kind of uh, prerequisite well, I, to join. No, I think it's just I, well, just there a guy is a prerequisite to join. Like, well, you know what? I liked if it. If you want me to go into like five hours of explanation about how the Oscars work, I'll do it for you. But work is a strong word. Yeah. Yeah, work is a strong word yeah. uh has it ever worked maybe it hasn't i'm actually listening to a new podcast called best picture pod right now so people can go check it out but it uh, is going through every week sequentially like what has won best picture and uh you can have that argument that even back in the 30s they didn't pick the best movie no. of the year <laughs> so there's uh there's those things that happen too um cavalcade is the best movie of all time little side note did you there's that kind of like TV documentary that he's watching after he's been like controlling John Malkovich's body oh, for yeah. a while. Yeah. And Catherine Keaton's pregnant upstairs. Yeah. Did Sean you Penn's notice the it, cameos yeah. that happened yeah. in that? Uh, Sean Penn who, and... Uh, yeah. And David Fincher is the actual director that they talked to oh, in that it? movie with a different name. But... Uh, what did I read yeah, about? So David... Sh- Sh- did Sean Penn produce this movie? I think so. I uh, might have. Brad Pitt shows up actually for a second yeah. too. He had a great it, look. So. I loved when... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is just before they overdid with CGI and cutting people's face. It's like Zoolander when they actually had cameos and people actually interacting, pretending yeah, yeah. that Zoolander's a real person. And so here they're they're talking about John Malkovich as a puppeteer. And I was half expecting them to cut away because they're just using, but they're actually filming these people yeah. who have been asked to talk about John Malkovich, the puppeteer. Uh, yeah. And it's it's so great because it it's grounded in something that is happening, but it's so surreal and bullshit that uh it's just comedic it's great i i think i love it sometime in the future we're, we're all going to do puppetry i like john penn's <laughs> commitment to that line yeah you know then the the puppet thing going back to the psychiatry stuff uh, it's such a great use of an art form uh about controlling people and trying to build a picture of life i know art in its essence is trying to reflect different parts of ourselves or the world or whatever but puppetry is so literal and formal particularly in this sort of uh pseudo fine art sense where they you know it's well it's like puppetry is that thing that's like just a step up from ventriloquism i find and like respectability of like the arts and (laughs) sort of thing so it's like the perfect thing to have picked to be the thing that he is like super into this is how i speak about darts and bowling when it comes to sports but uh yeah right no, I'm just right. coming off like an asshole. I think at the end of the day, um, it, it's a psychological movie, uh, a philosophical one, and one that is concerned with, uh, we. Uh, John Cusack's character uses the word consciousness, I think human nature. And um, I wrote sort of like this heart of darkness thing, you know, asking mm. 
the viewers to ask themselves whether they would do any different in this scenario. And so if you and I actually pulled that filing cabinet back and there's actually a door and a hole, would we not go through it? If we could be even a random person, would we not go through it again? You know, how do you not get trapped in this yeah. idea of getting to be somebody else? It's well, it's I think a fascinating thing. Honestly, I mean, sometimes I maybe bring too much of like present day interpretations to films that were made in 1999. But I think that there is a real world analogy that can be made of this, which is like being online, whether it's an, an avatar you're hiding behind or like posting on Twitter or wherever you're your home base is, you can get sucked into this thing of being that dopamine rush of being, you know, 15 minutes turns into three hours just because you're getting that constant gratification in. And honestly, I find that that's what this movie is. It's like, oh, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling happy. Or there's something that I'm getting out of this arrangement, even though it is actually damaging to my mental health. Uh, so I think that there's that analogy to be placed. This is one of my favorite types of films, which is you can enjoy it just on the surface level of just the story it's telling. But also, I think that there is some very deep and resonant themes that it's bringing up that you could spend, you know, a couple of hours jumping into and talking about. But something that's a hard uh, road to hoe. Perfect. <laughs> to make an analogy. We just end the episode right there. Road to hoe. Uh... Bam. I, it, this shows my age that I didn't think uh, how of your, um, I think that's a great uh, allusion to the current world of the internet uh, communities because I don't really, like I'm partaking in the surface of it. You know, I have yeah. an Instagram and you a Twitter account. Watch, you watch old clips of Saturday Night Live and send them to me. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time on YouTube, but uh, I was never in the, what do you call it, MMO world. I, I right. didn't go out and uh, act as a female elf or a goblin and you know, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, you did that uh, at home in your bedroom like a normal person. Well, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> Pierre Trudeau said, uh, what happens in the bedroom? So right. I, um, I think that's great. You know, I'm just imagining that lineup. Uh, of all of the or the, even the original scene where the first guy comes and he's like can I be anybody I want and they're like John Malkovich he's like that's perfect I'll take it you know he's crying he's so happy know what I love know what I love about that scene is that he, he doesn't say that's perfect he says oh that was my second choice that my second that's choice. perfect <laughs> I'm like oh I really want to know what your first so actually to that point who would your first choice be Dave oh I don't know right now I, I don't think I could pick I'm not in I don't know who I don't know Cal is there somebody that stands out that you want to be? Honestly, right now, because I, I invoked his name earlier in the episode, I do 15 minutes in Christopher Walken. I, I'd like to <laughs> like to try that for Which a spin. Which Christopher Walken? Like current Christopher Walken or like Christopher Walken, Fatboy Slim, still, uh, still out there? Kangaroo Jack era Christopher <laughs> Walken. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. In 1999, I would have chosen to be in Fivashvinkel. Uh, but this is the thing. I, if you had asked me that question in 1999, I might have had an answer. I, I couldn't think of one now, but I might have hero mm -hmm. worshipped somebody enough to actually be excited to live in someone else's shoes. I think it's creepy now. And I, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the other thought I had when you were bringing up the internet thing is the saving grace for the people in this movie and 1999 is that there was a 15 minute window. But like mm -hmm. you talk about with the internet, uh, the more you pay, the more you can live there. And they do allude a little bit that once John Cusack can take control as a master puppeteer, he no longer has to leave, but it consumes him. Uh, and I'm just trying to also remember, is 99 too early for this to actually be a comment on the upcoming internet phenomenon yes. of living? Yes. Yeah. I mean, 1999 internet was like message boards and yeah. <laughs> like... 
15 websites. Like there was, right? Like they, the culture was aware that this sort of stuff was on, on the edge of the bubble, not maybe literally, but there was something already happening. I mean, in my generation, it was, uh, that TV makes you stupid, right? Little did they know that the internet- The TV really does make you stupid. <laughs> no, and the internet just... was going to make it so much worse, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> We're done here. Well, the machine has told us that we do have to wrap up. So I guess oh, I'll ask shoot. the questions that we always like to ask, which is, does this movie hold up? And do you think it's culturally relevant? Uh, yes and yes. I think it's beautifully shot. I think people ought to watch it, whether they like it or not. You know, there are small things like, they had the Twin Towers in it, which is depressing. Yeah. And, uh, but other than that, some of those tropes probably still exist, like living in a basement with a bunch of monkeys and birds. I'm sure people still live like that. It's, uh, I live like that now. <laughs> yeah, we should actually have an episode talking about aborted uh, dead mice fetuses, Kyle. It's <laughs> fucking disgusting. Oh, I wish that wasn't a thing that actually happened in my <laughs> real life. But yes. Yeah, I'm honestly right there with you. I was anticipating liking this movie on my rewatch i guess i was not expecting to love it <laughs> on my rewatch i think this is a great movie and one that does stand up and i think ebert was right to say it was the best of the year for him at least um because it, it's very close to, to my favorite movie of the year uh, as well so i feel like i'm gonna be re-watching this multiple times in the future we should uh, to that point it. i i should have instead of renting it for five dollars with the machine. Ugh. Uh, yeah, I should have just paid the uh, 12 bucks uh, on <laughs> iTunes and buy it. Um, Still cheaper than watching Mulan, Disney. That is what Dave and I thought. So we'd love to know what you think. You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterboxed page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily, just like Green Girl YYC, you Ooh. can continue doing this podcast and not as you're in the apocalypse. You can go to our Patreon page. Uh, there's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free, though, is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what do you think you'd give this movie? I'm going to give it a five. I think it's the best movie watched Whoa. all year. Yeah. I was moved the most anyways. I'm going to offend okay. a lot of people like my wife who thinks this is a trash fire. Gar Garbaggio. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dave, it's ha it hasn't happened for a while, but I am also giving it a five. Ooh. I went, uh, so we both gave it perfect scores, Yikes. which means... That we need to figure out where it actually lands. Right now, there is only two other films that we both gave fives to, which was The Matrix and Office Space. So currently, The Matrix holds the top spot on our list. Office Space holds the second spot. Where would you put this in those uh, list of two? That's difficult. I do feel like, I mean, not that I regret giving office space a five out of five but i do feel it's a little overvalued since it was the first movie watched. hey stick it. to your guns stick to your guns if you're gonna give it a five you no, have to... i'm using that to put it third so the you know the toss-up for me is i think 
The Matrix is a more cross-genre entertaining film and a more universally lovable one. But in basking in the moment of having just watched John Malkovich, I think John Malkovich is a much more important movie, but it's not palatable. So I, I'm going to put it on top, but I suspect uh, no one else is going to want to agree with me in the broad public <laughs> or or watch this movie just because we said to. Because this is a co-podcast where we're both working at this, I think if this was me personally, I probably would still give the edge to the Matrix most of the time. But I think you're right. Like my my mind is fed a little bit more <laughs> with being John Malkovich. Uh, so I think there's a little bit more to it. And I, I wonder if over time I'm going to start to like feel that's going to get bumped up in, uh, in my estimation. In your pantheon so of favorite let, movies. Dave let, us be, <laughs> Dave, let us be bold here today. And let's plant our flag and let's put being John Malkovich at the very top of our list so that we can stand out above the crowd. And when people come to our letterbox page, they can flip their shit. <laughs> As uh, Cameron Diaz says, uh, they can suck our cocks. And that's where the episode ends. Great. So, entering our list at the number one position. It's been quite a long time since I've been able to do that. Is being John Malkovich. Well, I guess we should find out what we're watching next week. I should have I should have said this way earlier in the episode. Thank you, everyone, for spending your Christmas Day with us. Ooh, Christmas so, Day. Yeah. Unwrap this. I mean, what better way than to <laughs> spend some time with family if you can and then also, listen to a podcast for like an hour plus run, <laughs> over in the corner. Tell your parents uh, hi and then run up, shut your door, put on a That's pair right. of headphones and, and join us on this. Just bliss day. out. <laughs> so next week will be the year 2021, mm. if you can believe it. But I guess we should also find out what movie we're going to be watching. So let me just push this button. And oh, Dave, we're going to be watching The Talented Mr. Ripley. Is that a? Is that Are of, you going to try to steal my identity? Is that, is that the movie about the circus performer? No, I, I yeah, I think no. it'll be good to watch. This is the movie that stars incredibly attractive people, <laughs> in my opinion. What, what Hollywood um, movie wouldn't that? What wouldn't check that? But I box? mean, like top of their game, attractive <laughs> people. I recall not liking this movie when I originally watched it yes. at the year 16, 17, whenever I actually ended up watching it. Yeah. But that will be a story for next week when we're talking about <laughs> the talented Mr. Ripley. I just noticed there's a draft come behind the, the machine. Do you want to, do you want to just, uh, yeah. Okay. Let me just, uh, let me push this out of the way. Well, Is that a door? Yeah. Let's open it. All right. I'm, you go first. Ugh. Okay. Oh, it's, it's muddy back here. Oh, no. I th I think this is the one that goes into Polly Shore. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Someday I want to share passionate eye worship with somebody else.